Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Rear Window starring Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, Wendell Corey, Thelma Ritter, and Raymond Burr. Based on It Had to Be Murder by Cornell Woolrich, screenplay by John Michael Hayes, and directed by the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. Wait, well, who? <laughs> Brian De Palma? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to start a brand new film review cask, one we've done before, so we'll just call this one Films of Hitchcock Part 2. The well that could be returned to many, many times. I mean, the guy's filmography is just legendary and... The first time we did it, we did Vertigo, Rope, and Rebecca. That was a lot of fun, and I think we're going to have just as much fun with this slate of films from 1954. We're talking about Rear Window. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation uh, to talk about the Hitchcockian things we see in this film, the relationships, voyeurism, all those themes. I can't wait to have this conversation with you. Mm. I know this is a film you've probably seen a bajillion times. 50 times. 50 plus times, yeah. So I, I don't think I've seen nearly that, that amount, so you probably, you know, you're good with it. You know, you, you probably could have not seen it and been pretty good with it too. So. Yeah. Watch the cliff notes. Yeah, the cliff notes on I think Hitchcock. that's called a trailer, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, today, you know, having an oldie but goodie, uh, Buffalo Trace Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey uh, felt good to go with an old standard since we're going with Hitchcock. So cheers to you. Cheers to you. Mm, yep. Tastes like Buffalo Trace. Always get like a kind of a butterscotchy taste with this one. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, for like $25, can't beat it. You can't beat it. And especially for something that's always in high demand and is yeah. kind of rare, like they usually tell you one bottle per customer if and, if and when you find it at a store. So The bottle's cool, too, with the teared, torn look with the buffalo on there. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Before nice. before you converted me to Dr. Squatch, I, uh, oh, yeah. I had a Duke Cannon uh, uh, bar soap that was bourbon buffalo trace flavored. Actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it smelled pretty good. Well, I love that Doctor's Clash stuff, so there ain't no going back. Do you have a favorite scent from them? Do I? I you know which one I really like is the Grapefruit IPA. I've done that one yet. Oh, that one's great. Uh, that one and, uh, you know, the Pine Tar is a bit rough on your skin. Oh, man, It's yeah. heavy grip, but that smells amazing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Birchwood Breeze. You like those ones? That's a new one. What about you? I burned through that Fresh Falls this week, and I hadn't done that one yet. Um for everybody out there, like I can't believe we're talking about men's soap products. We are. Doctor Squatch is not sponsoring the program. I would love them That'd too, be awesome. as a matter of fact. <laughs> That'd be but sweet. Yeah. Maybe we should call them. Yeah. Shameless plug. Doctor Squatch. Put it in the uh, sure. I will. Hashtag it this <laughs> week. <laughs> no, I like the um, Bay Area rum. Oh, and I like the bourbon barrel brown. Was it barrel bourbon? Barrel bourbon. Yeah. So I ordered some interesting ones this week, though. They had a little special. Okay. And I ordered that one that was the Chalky Milk and the yeah. Mars Bar and then <laughs> whatever the other one was. Well, did you get Irish Cream and Whiskey? I did. Okay, I had that one, like, around Christmas. It's, I thought it smelled pretty good. <laughs> did you do the Frosty Peppermint I for didn't Christmas? Do, I didn't do that one. It, it It's that. It Yeah, it was that. They're so fun with their theming. and they just are. They have fun with, you know, traditional soap, and I like it because it doesn't dry out my skin, and no. I don't use a body wash anymore. I just use the soap, so it's yeah. amazing. Um, shampoo's really good too. Excellent. Well, to that, to, uh, to Dr. Squatch, to smelling and drinking good. Yeah. Uh, let's get started with our flight question. John Williams early work. 
Oh, that's Franz Waxman, who had just come off the Oscar uh, doing the score for a movie we have to cover one of these days on the show, Place in the Sun. Oh, my God. We've never done that. Yeah, yeah. That'd be a great one. That'd be a great one. Yeah. We'll put it in the pocket. You know, we're never starved for content. But to kind of get started here, today we're going to get into the weeds with, you know, an interesting couple of sorts uh, on screen, uh, James Stewart and Grace Kelly. And I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about their dynamic and kind of what it means for the story and the kind of play that they have in between that while someone's being murdered across the, the, the courtyard here. Yeah. But my question to you in all of Hitchcock's filmography, give me your top three favorite couples from Hitchcock films. Give me your three and then I'll give my three, my number three. Uh, coming in at number three would be the starring couple. And I bet you can guess. Okay. Rebecca. Oh yeah. Did you think I was going to go there? I thought you'd include at least that one. Yeah, that one's great. So Maxim de Winter and... The never really given a name second Mrs. De Winter, um, so Joan Fontaine. Now that's so regal to go with. Like the answer to this question is Lawrence Sir, Lawrence Olivier, mm-hmm. and Joan Fontaine. But an honorable sidecar running mate mention with this mm-hmm. is the actual Rebecca and the housemaid. That that's a couple we never see on screen. Sure, yeah. But they are clearly together on some level in this film. So an omnipresent present uh couple. That part when she's explaining to the second Mrs. De Winter mm-hmm. combing her hair and the little nighttime ritual that they went through together. Ooh, boy. Yeah. The things that are not spoken in between on those lines are pretty loaded. Go back and listen to that episode. That was a good breakdown on all the <laughs> weirdness going on at uh Mandalay <laughs> at Mandalay. Have you uh have you uh, watched uh, the one Netflix did with Lily James and no. Cannibal Army Army Hammer? I didn't. <laughs> I, I wanted to. I want to as well. It just I haven't gotten around to it. Uh, I didn't hear great things. I didn't either. But you know the source material is great, so I just kind of want to see how they did it next. I mean, there's no redoing Hitchcock's movie, so true. Yeah, well, we might have to check that one out as well. Um, my number three, I hope you let me have this one. I mean, it's not explicitly said, but I like how they interact with each other. So they're essentially a couple. Got to go Farley Granger and John Dahl from Rope. I mean, they essentially act like a married couple in that film. And it's kind of understated that they are a homosexual couple of sorts. But the way that these two crumble under them trying to hide this body and then host a dinner party, which is probably the first mistake. Should have done their murder a week before. Uh, But as Jimmy Stewart, like, latches onto them like something's not right with these two and the way they're acting and especially Farley Granger is just like essentially is just like why does a ghost and sweating the whole movie yeah John Dahl's the straight man um as a couple you you kind of see the power he has over him too in that in that film so that's my number three an unorthodox couple for Hitchcock but to Hitchcock doing maybe a homosexual couple in 46 way ahead at the time <laughs> good choice yeah I love that couple mm-hmm. um for sure, this guy was going to end up on my list. He mm. just had to figure which of those four films of his was he going to sure, use. Yeah. It's Cary actually going to be notorious. Okay, That's Mr. Cary Grant, Dev, T.R. Dev, mm-hmm. and Alicia Huberman, played by Ingrid. the irrepressible Ingrid Bergman. Mm-hmm. If you ever want to see the showcasing of true chemistry and beauty together, mm-hmm. watch the last 15 minutes of that film. Mm-hmm. When Dev was what Alicia mm-hmm. calls Cary Grant, 
comes to rescue her after our boy Claude Rains mm-hmm. and his mother have been poisoning her for some months. Yeah. That camera is so tight. Oh yeah. On their faces. Oh, and oh, oh, kind oh. of kissing her back into consciousness from whatever sedated state or near death state she might be in. Yeah. Little soft white light behind them. Mm-hmm. They just look beautiful. Now I've I've told you time and time again yeah. that Cary Grant with Irene Dunn is the best that's ever been. Mm-hmm. But this film yeah. is terrific for that. I don't know if it's a great film. It's a good film. Um, that's yeah, I take the back. It's a pretty damn good film. Um, um, I'll jump right in here because it's also my number two. Oh, shit. No, yeah. Uh, I actually watched this last week. Uh, the Unica Key. I'll echo your statement. It's I think it's in contention for top five Hitchcock movies for me. Yeah, it's, it's up there. They're great on screen together. Uh, I've kind of been going like just doing a whole Ingrid uh, Bergman thing. I'm actually reading a biography about her right now, too. Oh. Uh, kind of how David Oselznik found found her. He like really thought she was too tall, needed to put up a, a lot of makeup on her, and she's like, I, I really don't want to be about all that. So they just kind of showed her as is, and you know, she just so, such a natural beauty. But their chemistry is amazing, and I really like how Cary Grant is in that film. Is just like, yeah, you go with Claude Rains, and you find out these Nazi secrets, and so we can bust him, and you can kind of see like, yeah, you know what? I kind of love this girl. And I'm going to do what I can to get her back that no one seems to care about her anymore. You're right. That scene of them coming down the stairs and we're like in an almost extreme close-up of them is very unorthodox type of filmmaking, I think, for Hitchcock. But I was on the edge of my seat and I've seen that movie about five or six times. I think We should, be, we should do that yeah, film. That would be a good one, yeah. I, what if about this, Jesse? Okay. Right now, just off the cuff, you can say no. Mm-hmm. What if we extended this cast cask an extra week and, do that and did that in week four? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Because I think I think we had an extra week in there with our our new release that we're planning to talk about in mid February, um, but that would take us right. That would be perfect timing. So yeah, let's do it. Just built a new cast right here. Excellent. On the fly. The Unica key. It's always fun to talk about Claude Rains. Uh, what's your number one? Boy, this is so hard. Yeah. Even still, right now, it's between two. Lots of great couples in these films. <sighs> okay. Okay. I hope I didn't take yours on this okay. one too. <laughs> Scotty Ferguson. I had to go. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, so I'll let you do that one, and I'll do the other one. Are I was you gonna sure? Do. Yeah, yeah. I had to pick that one. That one's so good, and it's primarily because it's a, so fucked up. Fifty-year-old Jimmy Stewart yeah. does not look like he goes with twenty-three-year-old Kim Novak, but they're good on screen together. After he fished her out of the sea, yeah, and it, left her naked in the bed, you can see how they would fall in love together, and then you see well, what, how he would fall in love with her anyway, yeah, exactly. And then what she pulls on him, and then the psychotic episode he goes through to prove himself right is just unbelievable. It's the most messed up of all the couples on my my rankings, but they're so good together. That is is why I'm picking it. Well, and then the authenticity of why she's after him really is sort of at the beginning, very similar to the one that I'm about to choose, which is going to be Grant and Saint in North by Northwest. Oh, that's another good one. Because same thing, the age seems wildly disproportionate. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say she's out of his league because it's Cary Grant, man. Like yeah. no one's out of his league. No, yeah. But per some of the sexual entendres that they rifle back and forth with each other in the cabin car mm-hmm. to then leave him high and dry. Um, and it's just, it's like sexual verbal tennis. Mm-hmm. And after all that, I think it's what makes him such 
an irrepressible force in film is he's able to take all of the devious things that she did to him or with him and somehow still save the day and find a way to care for her and then bag the babe at the end too. It's a great choice. It was it was in contention for you know one of one of one of mine as well. But. Did you give any thought to Marnie, Sharni, Sean Connery, and Tippi Hedren? For the same reason, it's just so a little bit. It's just awkward. It's just so strange. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a, a little bit. These couples are a little bit better. I even thought a little bit about Janet Janet Lee and John Gavin a bit. Mm. Uh, but we'll leave that on the table for another episode. Yes, we will. But uh, no, great choices. Yeah. Here's two. I think Here's that, to your choices. That was really good. Here's to your leg. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's dive right into our view breakdown of Rear Window. This is the scene of the crime. A crime of passion filmed in a way you have never seen before. And as no one else would dare attempt. But the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. <laughs> Miss Torso. Hey, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about Jeffries first, and then let's talk about some of these other tenants, because I think they're they're fairly interesting of kind of how they, they live and operate. But yeah. our titular star is Mr. Jimmy Stewart. What, he's just such a great actor. I mean, and to his, you know, re- willingness to play against type sometimes, like, you know, in something like Vertigo or Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, these very emasculated men. Even here, I mean, he's restrained to a wheelchair for this entire film. Yeah. And even later in moments of extreme danger, when an action hero of Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart's stature would leap down the trellis and go rescue Grace Kelly from the clutches of Raymond Burr, has to just sit and watch. I mean, I think that's one of the most difficult parts of this movie for me is so helpless from beginning to end, this this whole film. You know, the way you just set that up Mm -hmm. leads to, oh gosh, let's do this. Um, A semi-controversial but I think worth talking about theory that I have about this film. Okay. Or at least if not theory as movie was designed, something that you can extrapolate from them for a lot of different reasons. I have varying opinions on this movie, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to argue with some of the games that Hitchcock plays with you. What you just described was a man who's incapable of satisfying or providing for his woman yet the whole time. Mm -hmm. He is gazed upon her, fixated upon her, staring at her with an orifice that is, shall we say, erect. Yeah. Is this movie mm. <laughs> a statement on impotence? It I'm could, not kidding and, and, and you. I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. They, you're talking about his leg. Or his leg and his camera, too. Well, both. Well, I, oh, well, that's very peeping Tom now, too. Well, I thought about that, too, when he pulled out his camera lens. I was like, wow, that's like the biggest camera lens I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> It's hard not to, yeah, it's hard not to like look at that and say mm. between the camera that is his only means of uh, relief mm-hmm. <laughs> and his leg, which has no relief coming until the cast is removed, mm-hmm. caught an eternal pre-ejaculatory yeah. state, I guess. Yeah. 
it's worth considering. And some people probably are like, oh my God, we're 16 minutes in and listen to this. I'm not ready to go there. I am with Hitchcock. No, absolutely. This is certainly in his in his wheelhouse. Well, this movie is almost two hours, and there's so many things in here that you can take one which way or the other. And I kind of have some of those I just want to propose to you as we go go throughout the film. But that's the beauty, I think, of his films is the interpretability of all these different things. Absolutely. I see Jimmy Stewart in this as very incapable to handle the task at hand, which is catch a murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all on uh, theory and what you think and what you see and not see. Uh, and he can't go over there and search the apartment. If, if he could, he probably would, but his nurse and his girlfriend are the ones that have to go do that for him. They do all the heavy lifting. Absolutely, I can totally see this about impotence, especially in how detached the steward is with Grace Kelly as well, um, just um, emotionally. So you're, wow, here we go. So maybe we're arguing, mm-hmm. or you're making the point, mm-hmm. or you've brought it up and I'm making, doubling down on the point. Mm-hmm. That he has, and I'm going to get into Grace Kelly here in a little bit too, but Mm -hmm. he has this beautiful creature who is literally throwing herself at him. Like, I don't think she's probably going to say, not tonight, honey, I have a headache. Yeah. And he is completely disinterested because he knows better. He knows that he's not capable of... I probably. Satisfaction? Maybe. Wow. Well, we start out with him fairly interesting. You know, we do a great panning of this... uh, Built from scratch set, which I think is pretty impressive. I think it was built in like six weeks. Amazing. Uh, And we're going to stay here the whole film. And, you know, that's another thing of, you know, single location films are nearly impossible to A, pitch, and B, execute. I think Hitchcock does a good job in this one. Always staying within this point of view of this little courtyard apartment complex. Did it three times, right? This, lifeboat, and then rope, right? Mm, Yeah. You're lucky if you can do it once. To that guy. Yeah. This, to, hit, this Hitchcock guy you keep talking to, about. To the point where when I watch this, I'm like, I want to know what's going on on that busy street over there. There's a restaurant over there. There's kids playing. Like, I want to I want to see what's over there. And we never leave this window space yeah. until he falls at the very end onto the ground. And I think that's <laughs> remarkable. That's, that's really cool. Everything's yeah. from the perspective of that window. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where I was like, I don't know if they've ever tried to do this like on stage, like as like a play. I think it would probably do pretty well. Um, anyway, but we start with him and his broken leg, but we see all the photography that he's done. You know, very, I like, is that that picture of the race car that's about to crash in front of his, fr- is that what broke his leg? It's a good question. I've always wondered that, but you know, he's ex- filming explosions, car accidents. He's probably in the jungles filming animal attacks. Like he's like doing like high extreme, like sporting event activities, but much to your extent of like, you know, adrenaline and uh, fulfillment Scotty like needs this in his life. His ability to not get that excitement rush uh, is killing him right now. It's why he's so docile in this in this room of his. So he's just yearning. He's like, the second I get, I'm getting out there, and you know, I know Lisa's in love with me, but that's not a world for her. And he's like trying to get rid of her in the nicest way possible. But he needs that, and I can see why he would go headfirst into this guy killed someone across the way. You brought up an interesting point there with this incessant need to find these adrenaline junkie rush. rushes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we're going to stick with this sexual impotence theme, mm-hmm. then that sort of is akin to a character that you mentioned in the show, I think, last week. Mm. Mr. Steven Soderbergh's version of Sex, Lies, and Videotape and James Spader. Yeah. 
basically couldn't get off. So he watched other people talk about getting off so he could live like vicariously through them. Mm -hmm. Doubling down on that same idea. If he is voyeuristically in sex lies and videotape satisfying himself, then it's also akin to Jeff or Jeffries Mm -hmm. because he is hooked on a same similar, I shouldn't say a same, a similar course of action. And that is immerse myself in these high pressure adrenaline scenes mm-hmm. and events. And I think it's the auto wreck too that took him out. Cause that tire is flying right at his camera <laughs> Jeez, in that picture. <laughs> it's a good shot that he got it, but damn. Instead of immersing yourself into another equally exciting creature as the movie would like you to believe, although I am not there cause I'm not a huge fan, which mm-hmm. would be Grace Kelly. Yeah. Let's get to her in just a second. Let's talk about some of these patrons across the way. I mean, the ones that, you know, really stick out to us. Who's your favorite? Which of the, all those windows, which is your favorite story? Uh, Miss Lonely Hearts? I think it might be Miss Lonely Hearts. Me I just Because uh, here's what I wanted to discuss with you. W- Miss Lonely Hearts is on the bottom floor underneath uh, Laura Starwald. And what a name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> having lonely dinners at night, is she having those? Is this A... She just can't get a relationship and she's just, you know, that pathetic? Or is it be a lost loved one like Sixth Sense or something like that? That. Yeah. That's, that's what I think. That's what I think too. And that's just as sad. You know what I mean? Yeah. The inability to move on, uh, stuck. And I was kind of thinking we're still so close to World War II, so I was thinking maybe he died there. Um, but, yeah, that's that's really sad, this conversation she's having with herself, you know, across the table. And then when she does go on a date, I mean, it's just something she's not ready for. And then she's like, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> like, she goes through such a progression throughout the thing. And then it's kind of important later of, you know, calling the police. I mean, they're calling for her initially. Right. And then it turns into go go one floor up. But, yeah, I think she's pretty interesting. And then who she kind of ends up with, what kind of ends up pulling her out of it. Okay, so we've got Miss Lonely Hearts. We have a couple flights up, uh, the body beautiful Miss Torso, who is some ballerina that seems to be really comfortable and close to nothing in front of the window dancing. We have the author, poet, struggling, young, professional uh, with his career who seems to be rat- like riddled with insomnia and writer's block or musical block. The musician, yeah. And then who am I missing? Oh, the uh, newlywed couple. Yeah. Okay, so... Now, those are the four. Mm -hmm. Those do two things for me. Number one, it provides some backstory and some other interesting points because it is, if it's just watching Jeff watch Lars in his apartment, that can get boring. Mm -hmm. So this provides supporting cast with backstories that are interesting. Mm -hmm. I would also argue it takes away from the argument that we might have made with impotence and flies in the face of what Jeffries is coming to realize about domesticated life when you settle down. Yeah. You could argue that each of the people that he sees in the window represents some other level of relationship development. Mm -hmm. The struggling musician is him as young photographer cutting his teeth. The body beautiful, Miss Torso, is trying to look good and waiting for your husband when he comes home in a 1954 kind of way, even though it's a sailor and he's been abroad and that's why she's... Yeah, Phil Silvers. (laughs) But she, yeah, but she's... She's also working on her craft. Mm-hmm. The other window is the newlyweds who basically spend the whole time in bed. Yeah, film. exactly. <laughs> and then the fourth one, Miss Lonely Hearts, would essentially be yeah. the widow. Mm-hmm. Those all could be representations of chapters in his life. Absolutely. Yeah. And the one that we seem to have 
aside from Lars Thorwald, mm-hmm. the most conflict in is the widow. Well, that's also a potential chapter in a thing is yes. a domestic disturbance. I mean, hopefully we don't go to the extent of chopping up our, you know, our loved ones and whatnot. But, you know, that's another piece of it, too. I mean, what we, we never find out what drove, what ticked off Lars so much that he just had to chop up his wife into oh, I didn't think about that, the bickering that they are always engaged in. Yeah, I kind of thought a little bit of maybe some Munchausen by proxy a little bit, like Sixth Sense, like he was keeping her sick in bed because we just see her in bed the whole movie of her few scenes. But what was it that set him off? I mean, that's a kind of unspoken aspect of this film I would really like to know about, or maybe not. Well, and what else we want to talk to Hitchcock about, get out the Ouija board, is what is it with the naggy woman that he does away with in like brutal ways in most of his films? Mm-hmm. He is not a fan of the naggy woman, is he? Nope. Okay, so if you include then the domestic non-bliss that he sees with Lars Thorwald and Mrs. Thorwald, mm-hmm. then... As he's watching, and this is the key component, so we're, let's put to bed the impotent piece for a minute, even though I like that That's theory. Pretty, I, I still like it, too. I do, too, but let's we've, we've beat that one up pretty good. Okay. So if you look at each one of those different things, this is like different windows. Mm-hmm. That's a reflection on the different stages in his life, and none of them really look all that great. No, they look terrible. Yeah. And here comes Grace Kelly, who does, as Hitchcock would want you to think, look great. Again, Katie Gerardo, Helen Ramirez by a mile, and I think I don't like Grace Kelly because of High Noon. Yeah. I can't get over... Because of the story of High Noon. I can't get over her character in High Noon. Yeah. I hate her in that movie. That'd be another good movie to discuss one of these days. Oh, she just leaves... I know. Oh, yeah. Anyway, but obviously... like Her introduction's amazing. This in the dark, kind of slow close up, and then it goes to like slow motion as they kiss. I mean, it's almost just like a dream. It's like is it, Jimmy Stewart has it has it good, and you know what I mean. Like, so you're gonna get a kaleidoscope behind him with his little hair spinning in front, vertigo <laughs> way. <laughs> a little bit. So here's all of these reflections of possibilities in a domestically inundated life. Add to that if you want the impotence, so there's no satisfaction for he or his mate. And here comes Grace Kelly into the fold, which seems to be a likely and really good candidate to do forever with. Mm-hmm. But this guy who's in his wheelchair with his two non-functioning penises yeah. can't seem to put the pieces together. So the statement, I guess, that we're at here is there are lots of levels of what domestic life means when you're with someone. And we can clearly say at this point that Jeffries, although older than Grace Kelly, is still too immature to want to embrace the good and riddled by the bad. I'm in love with you. I don't care what you do for a living. I'd just like to be part of it somehow. It's deflating to find out the only way I can be part of it is to take out a subscription to your magazine. I guess I'm not the girl I thought I was. You know, there's nothing wrong with you, Lazy. You've got this town on the palm of your hand. Not quite, it seems. Goodbye, Jeff. Well, you mean good night. I mean what I said. Well, well Lazy, couldn't we just, uh, couldn't we just keep things status quo? Without any future. Well, when am I going to see you again? Not for a long time. At least, not until tomorrow night. 
I like that one. I do too. Um, Depending on how much you miss someone, it might feel like a long time. Lisa Carol Fremont uh, is, us- yeah, is usually a character in film that would really irritate me. Um, mm, why? Someone who's cool. too prim and proper, mm-hmm. comes from a lot of money, so... There's the greed aspect. There's, you know, the high society aspect. Just too unbelievable. You want a little street in your women on film, huh? <laughs> Sure, why not? <laughs> but who she reminds me a lot of, and I can't believe I'm making this comparison, uh, is Elizabeth Shue in The Karate Kid, um, which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. kind of the comfort in the same cloth. They come from money. and Similar then, look, too. And the kind of the people they're into, it almost seems too good to be true. Yeah. You know, like, it's like you're trading down a little bit. But good comparison, nice. I Thank end you. up liking both of them because she does feel a little bit more down to earth because she's willing to. I don't care what you do for a living, I don't care what this is, I want to be a part of that no matter what. I mean, she just brought him a lobster dinner from like the best restaurant in New York City, probably. She's a good, a good woman. Um, but he's just like everything you said, the domestication of it all. Uh, if I stay, this is it, you know what I mean. And I don't think he wants just that. He he wants a little bit more out of his life. So um, it's a real crux that he he finds himself in. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that the film at least goes here. I mean, this part of the film uh, idea wasn't in the initial short story, and I think this is important. Otherwise, it would just be him watching Lars all day. Yeah, we need this in the film, like to to have some kind of back and forth. And I really like how she gets into it as the film progresses. Like. Yeah. I'll prove to you that I'm worthy of your adventures and your high adrenaline rush activities. And I'll be an active participant in this, like that the line later and we'll get into it. Cause it's, it's probably my favorite part of the movie too, is when they're talking about the flower bed, which I, I can never tell the difference. Yeah, me either. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Good. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Sure. It's there. Why not? But I can't tell. But when they're like, that's where Mrs. Dar like, and you can tell the moment where she's just like, she's on board with this thing and she's about to go dig up a dead body if yep. need be. Yep. That's pretty cool. So, you know, a lot of these, you know, characters will usually be like, I don't want to be a part of that or just nagging or if you were Hitchcock would do away with you here. She wants to be a part of it and is willing to change some things about her. But, you know, you know, Jimmy Stewart should also see what he has in front of her. And that's a bit frustrating for me as well, too. <laughs> I think, Yeah. I can see why that's frustrating for you. And I can also see why um, you probably have an affinity for this film because when we really start to like Lisa Carroll Fremont is when she gets down in the mud and starts getting her hands dirty and doing some of the work. Yeah. We also, I find Jeff to be a much more likable character when he's able to rise himself up out of the importance of whatever life he thinks he's carved for himself, which I think is just immaturity or selfishness mm. in pursuit of career midlife crisis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, he's just re- like, he's almost in a midlife crisis due to maturity at a latter stage in life. Do you know what I mean? Like he's mm-hmm. got a career, um, but his, his midlife crisis is essentially revolving around his, inability well one thing he talked <laughs> to, about, to settle down well one thing he talked about too which was crazy it was just kind of just living paycheck to paycheck it was just like and that. being okay with it yeah and that's like his life he's okay with being a vagabond and going from set to set and taking pictures so if we're going to have protag and antag which obviously lars would be the antagonist in and jeff the protagonist mm-hmm. i think lisa presents a secondary antagonist for part of this film too or sure, maybe that's sure. too broad me or maybe too too stark at least a challenge because for her to be able to 
live in Jeff's world. And it's all done in the final shot of the movie too. Mm-hmm. Like when they're reading the magazines. Yeah. She's got to be okay with like the NASCAR race on Sunday at Talladega. Yeah. But for her to fit into his world, there has to be a really damn good meal at that NASCAR race in, or like, a, sure. Yeah. But cause think about what you set up, Jesse, mm-hmm. she shows up with the lobster dinner and I'm pretty sure that's going to end in bed if they want it to, yeah. but he could give two rips about it. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. And, and he, yeah, he, exactly. Yeah. It's perfect. And that's the problem. You're too perfect. Yeah. <sighs> Meanwhile, this woman's throwing herself at you. <laughs> like, like, how do you win? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, it's tough. Uh, but I know we, we don't do this on the show because we sort of made the rule that you couldn't pick the couple or the topic from the movie of the day to mm-hmm. be one of the flight or nightcap. Would they have been one of your top three? I think so. Really? Yeah. Maybe number three. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I just like the change that they, they both go through. Um, and you know, uh, and I like to like, you know, both characters and for the most part I do, I do like, I like both of them. I, I like what LB Jeffries, his goal at the end of the day is to, prove himself right that he knows what he saw that he he sees something suspicious but yet no one will believe him again the impotence part of belief you know what i mean it like just, his camera's gonna work finally exactly yeah think about that i'm telling you when he pulls out that big lens it's just like it's almost comically big it's like is this a mel brooks movie or is this a hitchcock film like yeah 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 <laughs> Well, let's talk about the murder. Uh, Raymond Burr here, uh, he was cast because he bared, now look at the Freudian analysis of this, that he bared an uncanny resemblance to Mr. David O. Selznick, mm. who produced Rebecca and mm-hmm. was Hitchcock's introduction into Hollywood. RKO, right? If you're portraying Lars Darwald as this David O. Selznick lookalike who's the villain who chops up his wife, there's obviously some animosity there, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so something happened there. I don't know enough. I know El Selznick was a cantankerous kind of bastard. And, you know, we saw Mank. He was in Mank. I was going to say, isn't he having involvement in that really good movie, Mank? Oh, gosh. So I kind of want to know more about that, too. I just need to get a good Hitchcock biography or something that gets a little bit more into that. But obviously that didn't end well because he would have made all his movies with that studio. And he eventually went to Paramount here to make this one. So mm-hmm. um, Raymond Burr. And the, the white hair has to be makeup as well because i know two years later he's perry mason perry mason and he's in the godzilla americanized uh version with like jet black hair so they're making him up a little bit but we see the nagging with the back and forth and then maybe she's sick maybe she's not but then in a rainy kind of night um we're like he just leaves three times throughout the night and just to LB Jeffries and his nurse calls him out on it. Like, I wish you would sleep in that bed instead of in that chair. He like catches all of it. He catches all of him leaving all three times in the rain uh, and wondering where's he going at that time. And I haven't seen the wife in a few days. Mm-hmm. Something interesting's going on over there. Um, and maybe just, you know, some sort of like strange Mandela effect that I had watching this. I always thought that I heard a scream in one of these sequences too, like a strangulation or the the moment of death and like he's half asleep when he hears it i might be thinking of a different movie but i thought it was this one Hmm. um but it wasn't it's it didn't happen it's just the the taking of the suitcases through dumping the east river and wondering what's in those suitcases and i I love this i love the the restraint of hitchcock again he's so good at what you don't see is going to be so much better than actually seeing someone hacked in an apartment building but when Lars is cleaning the hacksaws in his kitchen sink, is just like you, the you, the audience is smart enough to put two and two together. Like 
he chopped up his wife into a bunch of pieces, put them in the suitcase, and went dumping them three times throughout this rainy night. Like He's hanging out with Luca Brazzi. Crazy. I mean, yeah. that's gruesome. That's a gruesome kill. I mean, uh, what, what do you think of Lee, just kind of the staging of, of this murder and whatnot? And I think the biggest fault of this film is... Raymond Burr's stupidity to do all this activity with the windows just wide open in his apartment. There would be no movie, but right. you, you know what I mean? That's fairly... We can make that case with all the windows too, right? Because mm-hmm. no one really does that. Yeah. But I think for Jeffries, it presents enough of an escape because that's the other thing too we do need to talk about. Like this man does feel trapped. He can't leave that room because mm-hmm. of his damn leg. Mm-hmm. I'll drink to your leg. Yep. And... If you were that bound up and were, you know, the world traveler and action seeker like he was and then restrained to a little tiny chair and no escape in a 12 by 12 apartment. I've never broken a leg like that before. That sounds, that seems like a nightmare. It does. Yeah, yeah, it does. He's, he's probably so bored. Anything might play into that. (laughs) Anything might excite him. (laughs) Yeah. Into that action-seeking mode mind that he has. So let me ask you this, and this okay. maybe we'll psychoanalyze ourselves a little bit. If we're in Jeffrey's position and we have this apartment and we just get the windows wide open all the time, which ain't my style, right? Uh, like I got like I like the windows closed. <laughs> um, would you take a gander at what's going on in some of these things? Because I would say I'll admit I absolutely would. I would you know just peek a little bit more longer than I should at Miss Torso, and I would look at Miss Lonely Hearts down there and. Oh, look, the newlyweds, they got their blinds closed because they're banging in there again. I would definitely take a gander at what's going on here. So to me, the voyeur, the viewer, absolutely. I think he's saying something about what human nature would do in this circumstance as well. So Yeah, let me double down on that. Yes, yeah. I'd like to morally tell you <clears throat> I wouldn't, but here's the truth on this film. Yeah. You're worse mm-hmm. than Jeffries yeah. because you're not watching. You're watching the watcher watch. Yeah. So... You're twice as bad. Mm-hmm. You don't even have the ambition to go seek it out and find it on your own. And solve the murder, yeah. You're just watching. You paid your little dollar fifty to get into the theater at this peep show, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's what, I mean, you're worse. Yep. That's mm-hmm. Hitchcock grinning at you like, oh, if you want to take the moral high ground, then I'll take your money and tell you bullshit on the way out of the door and say thanks for, you know, attending. It's, it's the POV in the slasher film. Yeah. You are watching the watcher watch. So I can tell you, mm-hmm. oh, no, Jesse, I'm above that. No, I'm not. Yeah. And I would tell you I, w- I wouldn't anyway because I'm not above that. Yeah. I hope it would be something worth watching. But mm-hmm. I, I'd take a look in pursuit of hopefully finding something good. And that gets back to the also point of Jeffries. Mm-hmm. Stuck in this room, can't get out of the chair. My camera's just sitting here. I don't get to take any auto racing wreck pictures. I just, I'm just stuck. Of course you're going to look at that and jump to these conclusions because you need something to fill these long, hot, boring hours mm-hmm. where you're trapped. Now, maybe it's right and maybe it isn't. But what's smart about it from a story point of view is it presents really plausible deniety, den- deniability for Thelma Ritter mm. and Grace Kelly. Cause they're like, dude, you're just, you're just stir crazy. Yeah. Like lay down here. Let me, you know, rub out these muscles on you again. And um, then you can get back in the chair. Yeah. And because of that, I can see why they would deny it. Yeah. You know, much as I hate to give Thomas J. Doyle too much credit, he might have gotten a hold of something when he said that was pretty private stuff going on out there. I wonder if it's ethical to watch a man with binoculars on a long focus lens. Do you you suppose it's ethical even if you prove that he didn't commit a crime? 
Crime not watch on rear window ethics. Of course, they can do the same thing to me. Watch me like a bug under a glass if they want to. And I wondered that this time. I wonder, as much as he's watching, or is are these people watching back at him? Watch with this, like, because he's like, he doesn't hide himself very well. You know what I mean? So here he is with his very long telescopic lens looking at Lars's apartment. I'm like, yeah, Mr. Musician could just look down and just see exactly what you're doing. So he brings up a good point there. Um, But the other kind of component to this is Wendell Corey as this detective friend of his who's essentially trying to dispel him of what he saw. So like, well, they saw Mrs. Darwald. She sent him a letter uh, and she's upstate somewhere. So why don't you get on with this? Get on. They have kind of a bit of a cantankerous relationship. They were war buddies. Yeah. First time I picked up on that one. Yeah. Um, and he's really trying to like, like anyone trying to solve a true, they're the original like true crime sleuths in this film. Trying to say, you didn't see what you saw. Move on. It's just a normal guy over there. And he just can't let it go. And I like how they Hitchcock is smart enough to talk about the ethics of what we're doing in this film while we're watching it. Rear window ethics of, is this okay if I'm watching you outside your window? Probably not, but they probably do it too. <laughs> I think this also brings up another common Hitchcock trope in film that he uses, and that's the ineptitude of the authorities to see through mm. the truth. They're mostly useless. Martin Balsam? Okay. Yeah, next week. Martin Balsam. Okay, yeah. So we're doing Psycho next week, everybody. There it is. Um, the cops that show up to help, whether it's Psycho or whether it's um, North by Northwest, mm-hmm. we can just go on and on and on. Blackmail. Yeah. yeah. They show up. Our protagonist says, hey, I saw this. And it's almost like Hitchcock has to check that box. I don't think he has an anti-authority or justice mentality, but like he has to recognize at some point normal human behavior would be to call the police. So let's get that out of the way. Let's render them useless, even in the birds too. Like I love I love in the birds. Yeah. When the cop comes and says, Was there a light on here or something? When these sparrows fly through the chimney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um they're all useless. Yeah. But at least we've gone through a realistic progression that does two things makes the audience feel like, okay, that's what you would do. So I'm on board with the actions the character's taking. And then secondarily, I think it isolates our protagonist where they're basically left up to their own devices to survive or and, not. And didn't the slasher film just take that in like yeah. in spades? The, sure. the other than like Loomis and you know, he's insane too. Like, the authority figures can't be trusted in that. They, they're the cops that come. You don't smoke grass over here at Camp Crystal Lake, and then they get That's killed. Right. You know what I mean? That's so right. they took all of that. They took the voyeurism. They took the ineptitude cops. And they're not like Keystone cops. This isn't like Abbott and Costello, but they're just like the naysayers of the thing. They, they're they not willing to go over there and believe because, A, you need a warrant. A, you need this. A, you need evidence. And blah. Yeah. So smart. Yeah, you're right. It gets that out of the way. That way we can go on with our amateur sleuthing, which is kind of what we're here for. So I think when we did the first cast, we got into the MacGuffin pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we're addressing two others here now, and that's Hitchcock's portrayal of authority as ineffective. And then, and I don't even know if we did it in the first cast. We probably did, but I can't be sure. The choice in the latter part, especially of his casting with women. Mm -hmm. I think more so than any other character or actress that he worked with. Now we know that he had it pretty bad for Hedron. Yeah. But I think Grace Kelly represents what he wanted his women to look like on film. And essentially that is, Blonde hair, blue eyed, fascist almost, not in a political way, but in no, that yeah. sort of um, 
mold that they're carved from, how Hitchcock liked to show his women. Well, they also Edith Head's uh, amazing just like costume design. I mean, Grace Kelly looks amazing because what she's wearing is just like, oh my God, like really that? Like when the nightgown scene, like... I'd be like, like, yeah. it's like the nightgown and like it, to Jeffries, it's just like, yeah, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that was Jesse arousal. That was not like, oh my God. Yeah. It was Jesse. Yeah, like, I was doing like the looks coyote good. and like a uh, Tex Avery. Yeah. Cartoon. Right. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. I don't know if you have an answer, but I'll ask. Okay. What is it about the too fine to be handled necessitate? in Hitchcock's casting with women that really pervades the latter two thirds of his career. To me, I think it's their response to the situation of the plot of the film. I mean, if that is something like the birds and how is Tippi Hedren going to this again, very immaculately dressed woman. And we're going to get, get to that one as well. How she could respond to this, like, unprovoked animal attack and there's going to be a lot to say so you've given out the whole cast yeah i've given do you guys want to so it's this week is obviously this film then psycho then birds and then the aforementioned notorious there's your cast for the next four weeks it's impossible to just say yeah we'll we'll, we'll get to that because those are huge conversations you know what i mean why the birds are attacked but what's her response to that too and it's the same in psycho i mean i think janet lee is absolutely beautiful in that movie and what's the response to this weirdo Norman Bates? You know what I mean? So I think, yeah, you can build up these women to dress them amazing and, and have them be presented a certain way. But to me, the interesting fact of this latter Hitchcock half is what are they going to do when shit hits the fan? I mean, like in vertigo, like same thing with Kim Novak. I mean, yeah. when Stuart's onto her, like, what's she going to do? Is she going to cave? Is she going to tell the truth or is she going to go along with it? She kind of goes along with it up until too close to the end and sorry. <laughs> well, the truth on that is, okay, so like I'm psychoanalyzing the use of his women in that. Yeah. When in Vertigo, Scotty is the least interested in Kim Novak. It's when she's actually Judy Barton yeah. back with her mm-hmm. werewolf-like styled eyebrows yep. and that hideous purple and green shit that she's wearing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get re-interested into her, in her, mm-hmm. until he remakes her over into... Madeline Elster. Yep. That handling of her and the inability to do more than worship, like not physically conquest or desire. I don't even mean sexually, but like to be physically intimate Mm -hmm. is not something that happens with Madeline Elster. Yeah. It's not something that Hitchcock will allow to happen with uh, Fremont, Lisa Fremont. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the, the thing about that is, is that Hitchcock's way of protecting his own desires by putting these women who he never really had a chance with other than he's the director and the casting couch, which he, he's, I mean, kind of isn't that way, but there is, there is a river slow flowing of literacy through some of the casting that he's right. Yeah. Yeah. Is that his way of keeping these women unkept and unknown from himself, not only story-wise, but also personally. Another thing I think it could possibly be is the classic 1940s Hollywood glamour actress being pushed into the 1950s cinema. Hitchcock's doing a good job at this time of really pushing the boundaries of what's possible on screen. I mean, we're got we're still in the bit of the Hayes code right now, 
but it's classic Hollywood. Grace Kelly, when she comes, I mean, that's just like, may as well be Casablanca, you know what I mean? Casablanca, Ingrid Bergman again, but, or, you know, Gone with the Wind, those classic Hollywood actresses. But we're doing a twist on their characters and how they're being presented to us and kind of ruffling their feathers a bit. Um, and I think I, the plot has a lot to do with that too. So, so let's. I've got a little bit more here. Okay. Let's run with this for just a second longer. As the classic Hollywood actress transforms from Joan Fontaine and Grace Kelly and Ingrid Bergman into, might I venture, a little bit more booksome, even Marie Saint, and then ultimately going into the Monroe stereotype through sure. the mid to latter 50s and early 60s. Yeah. Explain then, or let's let's see if we can figure out the role of Novak. Because of all of them, she's the most, I mean this with all due respect, and Kim Novak is a marvelous creature. She's the most hardy of his women. That's a terrible thing, right? I know what you mean, exactly. No, and, the, and, and that's, I like her the best. Like, uh, to be honest, I yeah. think she's... To me, Kim Novak's, again, like, she's like a film noir holdover, too. Yeah. Yeah, and she kind of fits that, like, almost, like, grim, nasty world of just, like, smoke and cigarettes and, like, the velvet and the costumes uh, being held over into this psychosexual thriller. You know what I mean? Like, to Hitch's credit, I mean, I would... He's on my Mount Rushmore of directors, primarily because I think he pushed the envelope before anyone was even considering pushing what film was capable of going towards... I think a lot of it has to do with this, like what we're talking about, the portrayal of, you know, you know, the women, you know, as, you know, being beautiful objects on screen, but also being, you know, responses and, you know, components to the the lead characters as well. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable what, what he's doing with some of them here. Think about this, Jesse. To me, Lisa becomes a more active protagonist in the second half of this movie than LB Jeffries does. Okay. Yeah. And if we're going to do this transformation of what Hollywood will allow you to cast on film because the audience wants it. Yeah. If we take the latter roles that women play in his film, mm -hmm. you can, and I'm talking like take Janet Lee. Yeah. Take Kim Novak. Mm -hmm. Take um, uh, Tippi Hedren mm -hmm. twice. He treats them like shit. Yeah. But guess who doesn't get treated like shit? Mm -hmm. Eva Marie Saint. And yeah. guess who doesn't get treated like shit? Grace Kelly. Yeah. It's this strange to me hanging on in sort of a wild bunch kind of way mm -hmm. as the kids are burning the ants with the magnifying glass. And mm -hmm. these cowboys are like, man, our time is just about up Yeah, because of the Gatling gun essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. Really yeah. hanging on to what he thinks Hollywood should look like and punishing it through women mm -hmm. and the depiction that they want women to be for the audience mm -hmm. and the latter bit of his work. Yeah. It's right there. I wow. mean, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that's it in a nutshell. And that's why, that's why I like watching these films. And again, like it's the presentation, it's the story, it's the acting, it's the cinematography, it's the whole package on like, not only just th these characters here, but I mean, he, the, he, he's paving the way for like these crazy sex thrillers that are, are going to be like the Jallos in the seventies. I mean, Argento and what Bava are doing. He was doing that way before any of this. I mean, he's not showing the blood and the guts, but he's doing the same films that those guys are doing. Good point. But everything kind of comes to a head here. And last night, I, I think of a line um, that we say a lot of on this show is like, ah, man, I think this movie was maybe 20 minutes too long. It's always 20 minutes, right? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the Batman might be 30 minutes too long. <laughs> it's almost three hours, right? Oh, dear God. Um. Anyway, uh. I was watching this last night. And I was like, yeah, this might be about 20 minutes too long of yep. a movie. And it's the detective thing that I could, if anything could get lost, it's that. 
Um, but when we get into like, I think it's act three. I mean, maybe the dog dying, I think is the beginning of act three. Like this, everything changes in this movie and it just becomes a very reactive type of reaction to that event. Um, so I'll play that clip and then we'll kind of get into it. Uh, just kind of the breakdown of those scenes. It's dead. It's been strangled. The neck is broken. <laughs> Which one of you did it? Which one of you killed my dog? tell you in film you can't kill kids and you can't kill the dog and hitchcock went there you know what i mean and this cute little dog that has to ride a little basket down to the first floor so he go pee and shit um and his owners sleep on the uh the stairwell because it's so freaking hot inside i imagine that it's cooler to sleep outside until it rains and they get their mattress completely soaked that was pretty hilarious yeah this scene we forgot to mention that yeah it's another tiny little detail this scene kind of really gets to me a little bit a because i hate seeing animals die on screen i mean that's that's not good and then just the heartbreak that this owner is feeling over that but then she calls out all the other tenants saying why would you do this how dare you how could you hurt a harmless little animal and what kills me even more is after everyone just goes back inside like yeah and such is life life in the big city And then they're watching. Th- it, 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 Jeffries at this point has kind of been convinced by the detective to give up his amateurish sleuthing. And then he sees like, it's interesting. I almost gave up, but Thorwald's the only one who didn't come out of his apartment. And that cigar ember in the dark. So good. I, I love that. So ominous. Just like, yeah, I killed that dog. So what? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> We're changing. The movie's going into like, we got to get this guy now. We got to figure out what's in there, what he did. And what the dog was doing was getting into the little rose garden there because something was buried there. So cut to the next day, Darwald's moved whatever was there out of uh, the rose garden. And, you know, Lisa and uh, Thelma Ritter are going to go and dig it up. And I just love how just gung-ho they are. I mean, first they were saying, you're crazy. You have no idea what you're talking about, Jimmy Stewart. And then they're just like, yeah, let's go dig up this guy's garden. Yeah. Like, they're just such team players at this point. But, again, from his perspective, he has to watch everything from that third or second floor, however high up he is, just to, like, watch. And he has to set the pieces in motion. He has to get Darwald out of the apartment by writing that letter, which... That kind of had me on the edge of my seat, too. I mean, like, she was, like, one millisecond away from being caught when he opens the door. Like, mm-hmm. like get out of there quicker. And then he has to get him uh, out of the apartment. Did you get my note? Well, did you get it for a while? Who are you? I'll give you a chance to find out. Meet me in the bar at the Albert Hotel. Do it right away. Why should I? little business meeting to settle the estate of your late wife. I... I don't know what you mean. Come on, quit stalling, Thorwald, or I'll hang up and call the police. I have only a hundred dollars or so. That's a start. I'm at the Albert now. 
I'll be looking for you. And like at this point, everything's circumstantial evidence. I mean, they don't have anything hard. There's no body part or weapon or anything that can tie him to the crime. So that's what they need. What do you think of all this? I mean, we call Hitchcock the master of the spence. How do you think he goes about orchestrating this final sequence here? Aside from the negatives of the garden that I agree with you, you can't tell the difference in. um, I think it's really good, except for one bit. Okay. We're going to get all the way to when Thorwald comes to um, Jeffrey's apartment. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, at the end. Do you want to wait on that a (laughs) minute? Okay, up to that, it's pretty good. Okay. Because he has to create a distraction to get him out of there Mm -hmm. so that his team, Ritter and Kelly, can investigate. Go look. Yeah. (laughs) So I buy all that. And, like, the way he sets it up to settle the estate of your late wife, like, all that's really, really well done. And then, in a very Hitchcockian way, Mm -hmm. what he loves to do is let the audience know what's going on, but not let the characters know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that is where we really start making some pay with Jeffrey's character here. He can see all of the action, but the people that he's caring for that are in the apartment complex across the way, he can't communicate with. Yeah. So we want to say, it's coming, there's a bomb underneath the mm-hmm. table, whatever mm-hmm. you want to go with, yeah, right? Yeah. What, we've used that a lot in yeah. here. And Jeffries is in that same position. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's crafted really, really well that way. Well, they, they, they got a real good thing going here when Kelly sneaks into Tharwald's apartment and they're looking for the wedding ring. If she, yeah. if she was buried, like, what's in that jewelry there? Uh, and while they're, they're supposed to be watching her and then let her know she's gonna he's going to call his apartment if he's coming back. And then that's when Miss Lonely Hearts is, like, writing a suicide note and then about to take down, like, eight sleeping pills mm. to just end it all. So they're watching her and then we stop paying attention to what's up there and then they're calling the police and then it's like too late when he looks up again and here comes Raymond Bird down the hallway. I love that moment. It's just like, what, what's she going to do? What are they going to do? Again, the helpless aspect as a viewer, as Jeffries, there's nothing he can do. I mean, you just have to watch the events unfold. And I, that's probably what Hitchcock exactly wanted too. It's just like, you're just going to watch this unfold and you're very going to be very helpless to the events of it all. Yeah. And probably my favorite moment of the movie is the cops come kind of in the nick. I he remember probably roughs her up a little bit too in the dark and we don't know what happens there, but she's all kind of frazzled when the lights come back on and here's the cops again. Um, and so they're like, what's going on here? We had things about an assault and whatnot. And then that moment I, I had the, the little clip here of, um, What's she trying to do? Why don't she turn him in? She's a smart girl. Smart girl? She'll get herself arrested. It'll get her out of there, won't it? She points at the ring on her finger. Look, the wedding ring. Turn off the light, he's seen Damn it. And he looks up and they just make eye contact. It's so awkward, but you're just like, oh man, the jig is up. And what's going to unfold now? I mean, we still don't have evidence to say he committed this crime. And meanwhile, they're trying to, again, the fishing for money. Uh, I like how Lisa only has like 50 cents in her purse. Yeah, yeah. Um, But they're trying to bail her out of jail. And they're not paying attention to what Darwald's doing. And he's turning out all the lights in his apartment. And he's leaving because he's coming to Jeffrey's front door to know what gives, man. Yeah. that's all really well done. I mean, mm-hmm. the master of suspense is setting a lot of really interesting elements, not letting the characters know, hey, that guy just left. You might want to know about that. Mm-hmm. But we know about that. So we're just waiting for that to happen. 
Well, let's talk about this moment here at the end, the final confrontation between assailant and uh, protagonist Jeffries, which is, um, you know, Raymond Burr comes into the door. It's all very darkly lit. Um, I think he tries, uh, Jeffries tries to go and like lock the door, but he can't get out of his wheelchair. So he can't even do that. Um, but he comes in and it starts very amicable of just like, what do you want from me? Like, do you want money? Are you trying to blackmail me? I don't have any money. Like we're worthless. Like, what do you hope from all of this? And Stuart is just like silent. He's just like, and I think that made me uncomfortable too. I mean, uh, I would probably try and talk, but maybe again, that emasculinity that Stuart's really good at doing in these movies was just like, I think he was just scared shitless. Yeah. Didn't know how to respond to him and just like, let me keep my cool here until I can react to something. Um, and it's the wedding ring is like, no, the police have it by now. And this has always been the silliest part of the movie to me, which is like just the flashbulb effect of I'm going to blind him uh, to oblivion and hope he doesn't come and kill me. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I think Burley Raymond Burr would just burst through that and just go choke him out if that's yeah. what he's capable of. But he's able to get like four bulbs off before uh, help arrives. What, what do you think? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> It's stupid. Um, are, I, are those bulbs? I, I know, well, not not so much about old school photography like that. Those are one-time use bulbs, right? Yeah. Man, I know. Talk I, about I a know. waste of resources. I, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm talking not in the film. I'm just talking about just photography in general. I mean, that seems like a waste. I just think they could have gotten to the part where there's out of flash and Lars has Jeffrey by the throat, you know, short and curlies. Mm-hmm. Much, much sooner. Yeah. And while there's the flashbulb stuff going on, you could have had Jeffries rolling around on the floor and had some little skiff, like a little scuffle that might have been entertaining to watch and certainly more believable than this light bulb thing. I don't even think that would work. Yeah. I'm serious. Like, flash a bulb, like, I guess. I think maybe because he had glasses, it's like kind of doing a, a double guess. reflection, but like, it's still just like, if you really wanted to kill somebody, just go do it. Don't well, and then he takes his glasses off and like, Dusts them off and blinks and takes twenty seconds to get the. It's just it's so ridiculous. It's well, you know, we talk, all the things in this film that I think are crafted well. This part's this flashbulb thing to me is just such a deal breaker. All endings in Hitchcock, you know what yeah, I mean? That's like a good it's point. just like he, he he gets to the end of the story and just like we need to end it as fast as possible. What, yeah. what do we do? Yeah, and so it's him hanging up from the window seal to fall. I know you're gonna. Everyone's gonna laugh at that little special effect of him falling, but kudos to Hitchcock for even thinking we could do a special effect doing that. Yeah. You know, back in the day, they'd be like, "Just drop the guy." <laughs> right, right. He was like, "We could do an optical effect, and it can still be Jimmy Stewart falling down." I know it looks terrible to today's standards, but man, the guy was always doing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember uh, Saboteur when the guy falls from the Statue of Liberty? Yeah, like, oh, it was like way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Green screen and. Uh, forced perspective. Yeah. I think I think those things are cool. Yeah. So those things never appeared dated to me. I'm just like, good for you in 40, 54 to like think of that. Yeah. Um, but the best part, uh, Jeffries breaks both of his legs. Now. Right. He was kind of pretty high up, actually. I was. I always kind of thought he was just like it wasn't that far of a drop. But this time, I was like, yeah, that's kind of pretty high. I was like, I, I wouldn't want to fall from that distance too. And of course they don't catch him when he falls. Just, he takes like the full impact, breaks both his legs. Lars is ready to give a full confession. And then we got to have always that like second scene. Thank God Vertigo didn't have that. But like this like tailing end scene of the aftermath, 
But I think it's important in this film because we spend so much time invested in all these tenants in all the rooms to kind of see where they're at now. And we see Miss Lonely Hearts is all into the musician that the musician, the music cured her depression. Yeah. So they might strike up a relationship. Uh, Miss Torso's uh, sailor, sailor husband, tiny guy. He's shorter than her. That's the funniest part of that. Comes home. And like, What's in the icebox? Right. <laughs> Uh, the newlywed couples starting to bicker a little bit. You're like, oh gosh, is that the new Lars Darwald happening over there? And so everything looks nice and ordered. Jeffries has his broken legs. And then again, this last shot of Lisa reading hiking through the Himalayas or so, the West Andes or something. Uh, and then puts it down and she's like, yeah, I want to read about fashion. You know what I mean? So like I'm willing, She, but that's what I like about her. She's, she wants to have a leg in both parts and why not i mean she's probably good so right. uh that's the end of rear window um a couple couple little things do you have anything to say about that the, nope. the little ending there nope. um i mentioned the david roselsnick a bit um i thought this was interesting i never read this before but hitchcock directed the entire movie from jeffrey's apartment so even things happening across the way was through they use flesh colored earpieces to give direction wow Pretty innovative, but also I think Hitchcock, like probably as a director, wanted like the same experience that the audience was going to go through. It was like, I'm never leaving this room and I'm going to watch it all unfold from from here. And I thought that was pretty cool about, you know, until Raymond Burr comes in and is bleary eyed with the flash photography. We just watch him from across the way in long, medium shots. And then it's like now we're in a close up with him and we're like, oh, this is the guy. Mm-hmm. Like Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but. This film was nominated for four Academy Award Best Director, I think, for Hitchcock with this one in costume design and cinematography. Um, of course, he didn't win. He never won that award in, in his career, but I thought that was pretty cool. And this has been on a lot of AFI lists, uh, mysteries and the thriller list that they do. I'm surprised they don't do they don't do those countdowns anymore. Do you remember they would do like a whole special oh, yeah. and yeah. count down the 150 hero and villains? Like, I kind of miss that, actually. Yeah. Um, but what's your favorite tasting note of Rear Window? It's a tough question. Um, Maybe that opening bit with Grace Kelly and the lobsters that she arrives with. uh, I think it sets such a strong juxtaposition between where Jeffries is at and where Fremont is at and how this couple is either going to make it or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lobsters and dressed really nicely and then you know, whatever is going to happen post lobsters versus the ineptitude of this guy wanting to put down his camera. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty loaded on a lot of different levels. Oh, I yeah. think we've done a good job getting into most of them. Sure. So I think maybe that. Good choice. Yeah, mine's probably going to be the Lisa looking through the apartment and here comes Lars and then the police come and they're just like so much excitement there and it's it's just Stuart can't do anything about it. And that's, I think, my favorite part of it is just he just has to like wait and see what happens. And that's frustrating as a viewer and for him as well. Sure. Um, what's the oh my God! moment of this film where we need to have some more Buffalo Trace to cleanse our palate? Not in a good way. Yeah. The light bulb bit. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> I need to drink that one away. Not in a good way. You'd, you'd undo that one. Literally, like, just, oh my God, really? That's how we're finishing this? Come, come up on. with a with, yeah. a, com- uh, with a different type of confrontation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go with the dog bit. Um, again, I don't like that on screen. Uh, but, you know, b- prior to that, especially in this film, I was like, 
movie's getting a little long here. Nothing's really happening in this middle part of the movie. But when that happens, it's just like, whoa, like now we're in it. And it's like true criming to the nth degree. And you're just, it's kind of really exciting from there to the uh, end of the film. So that's what I'm going to pick. Who's the master distiller on Rear Window? Hitchcock, for sure. Technically one of the better films that he did. There's more of a technical focus on this than there might be something Mm. else. Um, Strategic in the way that he chose to shoot it. And then pulling off single location, whether it's lifeboat, this, or rope. Mm is really tough to do to still keep some interest in the story. And he does that. So it's, this is Hitchcock. I got to give it too. I mean, yeah, the techno technicality piece of building that set. Mm -hmm. And then all the stuff you're doing with different camera lenses, not only POV, um, but even the thing with the stupid viewfinder, like even that's intricate in how that's being portrayed to the audience and the stupid flashbulb thing. Like there's even an effect there, uh, an optical effect as well. So he's doing a lot of really crazy stuff that are way ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for Hitchcock being called the master suspense and a great director. I mean, like this guy was a te- technical marvel as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he came up with some of the stuff. He's like, what if we uh, dropped a guy from the statue of Liberty? Uh, what if it looked like this? And like, no one talks about that. Like this guy was like Stan Winston and like, yeah. uh, you know, Ray Harryhausen rolled into one and he was directing the movie as well. You know what I mean? It's impressive. Like the, the, the trailer that I played at the beginning is a voiceover and it's just Hitchcock sitting on the set. You know, you know what I mean? Like people, they were able to sell movies on his name alone. Like, that's huge. Like, and he would be in the trailer. Like, that's just crazy to me. Yeah. We'll have a, a great one to talk about next week with uh, with Psycho in the Bates Motel. I mean, like, that's sure. wild. Like, in a suit, yeah. he was more of a way to sell the movie than the actors in it. We've never seen that before. I don't even know if we'll ever see something like that again. I mean, yeah. crazy. How are you going to rate and grade Weir Window? We have Rock Cut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where are you going with this one? Despite all of the interesting theory that we posed and the technical elements that he tackles seamlessly. Mm -hmm. This is just a call movie for me. Okay. Um, It's not in my top 10 of his, it's not, it's not a bad movie. It's, it's mostly entertaining. Again, like you said, it's, it's too long for me. Mm -hmm. The detective bit gets a bit arduous. Um, There's just two huge deal breakers for me to Mm -hmm. keep it from like being great. Yeah, Yeah. And it's the fucking flowers and the picture yeah. and the flashbulbs. Yeah. Those are two just, if you're going to do that bit with the flowers, it's got to be really noticeable. Well, what's even kind of more infuriating about that is they go dig them up and then there's nothing there. Like it would, it'd be good if they went and dug them up and they found something. Found something. Yeah. Just call for me. Not yeah. even call plus. Just just call. It's just call. And I know you've seen it like so much too. So there might be just a bit of a burnout, a burnout on your end as well. It's fair. Yeah. But I'm going to go top shelf with this one. Um, It's not my, we've covered my favorite Hitchcock film on this show already. Um, But yeah, vertigo. Yeah. Vertigo for sure. Uh, But you know, for all the things we got into the weeds with the discussions, I mean, these are why I like his films. I mean, these are why I like watching them and you pick up on little different things like each time, like, the stuff with Miss Lonely Hearts or, you know, you know, stuff like them being like war buddies together. Like, what does that mean? I mean, Stuart was an actual decorated war veteran. I mean, mm-hmm. is he deriving from real life there? I mean, there's conversations I have with myself watching these films that I don't have those conversations watching like <laughs> Mortal Kombat. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I like that. It tests me. It, it, it requires me to pay attention a little bit more. Like I when I watch a Hitchcock film, I'm like, 
I thought about that this time when we start with Jeffrey's apartment and we see the car accident photo. And then there's like that weird, creepy photo of the negative photo of that model on the magazine. And I'm like, why did he do that? And I, when Hitchcock does something, it's usually on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing's just there for shits and giggles. And that's why I love his movies. And here, the things I like, I really like the things I don't like. Uh, they kind of, kind of ruin it a little bit. But once that unfortunate dog gets killed, like that's a really great thriller in the last 30 minutes of this film. So yeah, top shelf for me. To me, there's tiers of Hitchcock, and this is kind of in that upper tier for me okay. of, of films. But we can kind of discuss what might fit into the that tier and also below that tier as well. So uh, great discussion. This Torn is, curtain. Oh, oh. Gosh, like to me, uh, you want a hot take right here. Go. I think The Birds is his last good movie. Like, I know we talked a lot about Marnie, but like even that one's like really e- pushing it for me. Yeah, it's, yeah. And then it's fucking Topaz and torn curtain and frenzy. And I don't like any of that stuff. Right. Like to me, like my favorite Hitchcock is like, it's rope through birds. Like yeah. that era is just like gold for me. Yeah, you're right. But then stuff before that too is also good. You know, you know, I'm a shadow of a doubt apologist. I know you don't like that movie. So it would be fun to do on the show. Like we don't need to do it. That, that would be fun to talk about. I actually be. do want to revisit that and strangers on a train. Again, we can do, we'll do part three of this guy. I mean, mm-hmm. Trouble with Harry would be another good one as well. And oh my we have that would be such a good cast. We haven't done North by Northwest. So yeah. it's not a, dr- a well that's going to dry up anytime soon. Well said. So let's wrap this up with our nightcap. I think at this point too, I think this was the last Franz Waxman score he did. Cause then it was the Bernard Herman show after that. And that stuff is amazing. Yeah. So go ahead and hit. I love this nightcap question. I'm so excited to hear what you got for this one. There's no shortage of directors that cite him as an influential character in their filmography. Mm-hmm. So keeping that in mind, what I'd like you to do is give me the most Hitchcockian non Hitchcockian film directed okay. ever made. Does that make sense? Let me try that again. The most Hitchcock-like film that, that Hitchcock never directed. There you go. There you go. Uh, do you want to go first, actually? Yeah, go ahead. The Sixth Sense. Oh, perfect. Sixth Sense. <laughs> From the cameo that's in it to the... Now, he wasn't big on Supernatural. And that's a little bit more Supernatural, but it's not a Hitchcockian film. Um, I think of all the working directors right now, and it doesn't mean mm. quality. It just means attempts. Shemilan is yes. the closest thing. Yeah. You can argue De Palma here and there, but that's not really as contemporary as I'm going with this now. Um, Go listen to our Sixth Sense episode. We talk a lot about that comparison a lot. That Yeah. Uh, I thought about Unbreakable too. Mm. Um, yeah. That's a little bit too auteur, and Hitchcock never got quite that artsy. Maybe Rope might play in that room a little bit, mm-hmm. but... I think it's a sixth sense. Great choice. Thanks. Actually, didn't even think of that one. I'm ashamed to say, but you're totally right. I mean, the, would you would you say the most supernatural he goes is maybe Rebecca? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would. And that's you know, there's like really pushing the envelope on what's supernatural and and not. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you maybe have some honorable mentions, but let me get mine out first, and then because I have a few myself, uh, my own. Uh, we covered it on this podcast. Uh, if he was alive in 1992, I would love to have seen his version of this movie. His basic instinct. Yep. Like, 
again, it has everything there that you like, the psychosexual killer stuff. It's a MacGuffin movie. It's who's the killer, who's killing. It's it's hot. It's like, I would love to see Hitchcock direct like a sex scene that wasn't limited by the Hays Code. Yeah. It might be the sex scene in that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I could just totally see him doing that idea. Like, it's just right up his alley. It has everything he loves, a, a convoluted, unnecessarily convoluted plot. Like, you remember when Michael Douglas is trying to figure it out? <laughs> He's going from, like, hospital to hospital. Like, that would be in a Hitchcock movie. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's my choice. Good. Any honorable mentions? Yeah, I did one. That's okay. Unbreakable. The other one is Sleepers. Mm, okay. Familiar with that film? Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a bunch of boys that get abused terribly in uh, like a correctional institute as young men that come back to make the guards pay. Mm. Um, I could see him doing that film. Like it, That's too edgy, but I could see something... That was revenge ladder. We don't know why upon reveal. Oh my God. Here's the backstory on that. I could see him doing that. What about seven? Uh, I guess there's some similarities between that and I confess in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, baby. Yeah. 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 What else? I feel like maybe Zodiac might be a little more Hitchcock. Yeah, I'd than, say Zodiac for sure. Seven. Yeah. Uh, for me, I naturally went to De Palma because Blowout and Dress to Kill are very Hitchcockian, but maybe the most Hitchcockian of his is essentially a Vertigo kind of re- a body double. It's That's a very Hitchcock, and it's body W and rear window. When he's spying down at the murderer across from his lavish, that lavish cliffside mansion. Yeah, yeah body, De Palma, like, yeah, like before Shyamalan, he, he was, this guy's Hitchcock. Other than like, you know, Scarface and the Untouchables, um, those three I, I could definitely see. But then one that I'd be curious to see Hitchcock's hands on would be 1962's Cape Fear. Mm, oh. um, I'd like to see what he could do with a confrontational antagonist like Max Cady and the that family. You know what I mean? With Gregory Peck. And like He worked with Peck once on Spellbound, and I don't love that movie. No, me either. Um, but he was doing The Birds that same year, so it wasn't possible, but that... that has Hitchcock's hands all over it too. You know what I mean? Like that. It's like his wheelhouse. Bernard Herman score. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Salvador Dali. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he painted. He painted that whole dream sequence in sleep. Please, in, in, in spellbound. 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 Yeah. Great choices. Uh, there's so many we we could uh, we could potentially pick from there, but. That's a wrap on Rear Window. Go check it out. I mean, if you haven't seen Rear Window at this point, I mean, you're doing, the matter with you? you're doing a disservice to yourself. And then especially next week. And I'm very excited to talk about this movie. This is a heavy hitter in the Rye Smile canon of films to ever cover. 1960s Psycho. To me, you can put a linchpin in what horror films are pre and post Psycho. There's a definite, they were like this up to that film and they're like this after that movie. I can't wait to get in the weeds with why. Um, Anthony Perkins, I'm just going to say it right now, maybe one of the best performances in all of film history. Sure. Uh, so many thematic things to talk about. Birds, more Peeping Tom, Brazier Colors, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> MacGuffins, MacGuffin. and yep. Money, uh, and uh, Psychology Breakdowns. <laughs> going to be so much fun everyone like it's going to be a great episode next week i can't wait so until then cheers to you all cheers to you all go check out rear window um go check out our our podcast and any of the podcasting sites uh spotify stitcher apple podcast wherever you listen to the show but i gotta get going i'm gonna go peep and see if i can find a diagnosis on who killed the buffalo bills defense uh with 13 seconds left 
in last week's game because my God. <laughs> All right, I'll double down on that. I'm going to go watch The Trouble with Harry because the Chiefs were dead in that game and were resurrected miraculously. Can't believe that good shit. God. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Rare Window is property of Patron Inc. and Paramount Pictures. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Sorry, Jeff, I got here as fast as I could. Oh, Mr. Jeff, he's doing anybody catch him. Get my medical bag from upstairs. Oh, please, sweetie, if anything had happened to you. Shut up, I'm Gee, I'm proud of you. You got en